0: Welcome to Meanwhile at the Museum, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with the people, stories, and shenanigans that make Cincinnati Museum Center what it is. I'm Cody Hefner, and I'm joined today by a person you've heard mentioned frequently on this podcast. It is the one, the only, Dave Mite. Welcome, Dave. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Your title is Exhibit Artist, Mm -hmm. and I kind of would have guessed that. Because I know a little bit about what you do, but I have no idea how you do what you do. Mm-hmm. Because consistently what comes up is Dave Might's amazing. Have you, have you seen this? <laughs> Look at what Dave has done. Because it is pretty remarkable. But you've been doing this for years here. When did you join the Museum Center?
1: I joined in uh, the summer of 1987 uh, uh, as a sculptor for the, uh, the Ice Age exhibit. That was your first project? That was my first project. That's what I was hired for. Yes.
0: So, backing up, I gloss right over this. Exhibit artist, what does that entail in this period of your museum
1: career? In this period? Well, we just finished up our nature exhibit, um, Get Into Nature, and for that, uh, it actually entailed a, a number of different things. One of them was uh, mounting up or the taxidermy of a number of specimens that uh, we wanted to include in the exhibit. Uh, Another one was making models of various uh, plants and animals that we wanted in the exhibit. That'd be like reptiles, amphibians, uh, local wildflowers, and some uh, plants, local plants. And then I also was making mounts and platforms for objects that went into the exhibit.
0: I was walking around uh, with some staff from the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, and they were all amazed by getting to nature, by how realistic everything looked, and by the process of how that exhibit came together. They Mm -hmm. were so impressed. And a lot of these were were individuals who work in the parks, who work out in the field every day. So they see this stuff Mm -hmm. in real life every day, and they were so impressed by the way that exhibit came together and and how it looks.
1: That's good to hear.
0: Sticking with that exhibit, and we're going to jump around to a lot of them, but sticking with the Get Into Nature Gallery. Do you have a piece or part of that that you are most proud of? That you that really stands out to you?
1: One of the things that uh, I did that uh, I'd been looking forward to for a while, and I've dabbled with a little bit in the past, is uh, the making of artificial plants, and that was something that I could really sink my teeth into with this exhibit. So. Because there were so many, we did buy some from some museum exhibits companies, but I still got to make quite a few myself some flowers and different types of plants. And so that was, um, it was a bit of a learning experience, but I, I kind of knew the methods, but I had to kind of fine tune it a little bit to get the result I wanted.
0: What's that process look like when you are recreating plants? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like taxidermy where you have the hide or the the animal that you are um, I'm going to be very untechnical and unscientific <laughs> that you're essentially stuffing into that form right uh, but a plant you know you see a leaf on the ground right you're not preserving that you're not taking that and kind of spraying lacquer on it and then plucking it into the exhibit so how are
1: you recreating them? well the dead leaves that you see in the exhibit are actually real dead leaves are they really but they are soaked in a solution of glycerin a glycerin and water solution and so the, the glycerin and water soak into the leaf and keep it moist, keeps it from drying out and cracking. And so that adds the longevity of the, the, the realism of the looking of the leaf. No kidding. So the, the dead leaves are actual real. Back during the Ice Age exhibit, we tried vacuum forming uh, artificial leaves, but you just need thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And it's just very difficult to get the number that you need. And then each one needs to be painted and detailed. And so it's actually better, it's just more efficient to use the real thing and preserve them. But the other plants, like the flowers and some of the other plants, I actually would go out and collect. In the springtime, when, they, when I knew they were in bloom, I'd go out to the edge of Appalachia and pluck a few, uh, as few as possible. And then uh, I would actually, while I was there, I would make plaster molds of the surface of the leaves
0: you would just kind of press the leaves more or less into putty and you get that relief?
1: We would press the leaf into a damp sand with the side that you want copied facing up. And then you pour plaster on that. Usually you want like a hard plaster, like a hydrocal or something. Um, you pour that on, let it set. And then when I bring it back to the museum the next day, I'd pull it. And that leaves you an impression in the plaster. And then we have a machine called a vacuum form machine. And what it does is you put a piece of plastic uh, that's stretched over a heating element in a vacuum. The heating element is above it, and what it does is it heats that plastic, and it starts to sag and melt. And then you pull it down up onto the vacuum, um, and the switch goes on, the vacuum comes on, and it sucks that soft plastic into the impressions of the mold and gives you a thin copy.
0: But then that's just standard green, you know, or whatever, whatever the color is. Clear, white. Yeah. yeah. And so you have to paint that. Yeah. You have to paint it. Are you spray painting? Like, do you just lay a bunch of these on the ground and you spray paint a bunch of them or how do you? Yeah.
1: Usually um, you get a good, a good group of them and spray paint them with a primer. Um, usually like a plastic friendly primer, something that's going to stick to plastic. And then uh, do the final painting, which could be some airbrushing, um, you know, using a, a regular brush. Just depends on the plant itself. If you want subtle changes or if, you know, you're painting veins or something like that where you want more contrast. So
0: anytime you walk through an exhibit and you see, for the most part, if you see plants in there, each one of those is hand-painted.
1: Yes. The, the production of plants is very time-consuming. If you were to buy one or buy some plants from a museum exhibits company that, you know, produced these things for, which there's a few out there, they are very expensive. And that's because, A, that it just takes so much time. B, the material is not the cheapest either. And so that's how a lot of the leaves are made. And then things like flowers where there was a little more three-dimensional, not so flat, I'd have to sculpt those in clay. And the mold has to be made so that the vacuum former will work on it so there's no undercuts or anything like that. So you have to kind of plan how you're going to create it flat and then cut it out and bend it and glue pieces together to create the you know the more uh, delicate, uh, complicated structures.
0: So you're essentially taking a 3D piece, flattening that, so that you can recreate it and then re 3d it right once it comes out right with how time consuming that is and how expensive they are if you buy them why not do something cheaper why not just do something cheaper quicker to put in the gallery what's the well name? there
1: is there is some shortcuts that are accepted in the museum world people want extreme realism but you have to you know factor in time and cost you can uh, basically buy plants off the shelf go to michael's hobby lobby or get online and order artificial plants that are already made and then cut pieces off of that and assemble them. So you can do a mix of, you know, all three of those things in terms of, you know, molding the leaves, creating the flowers, and then using, like, stamens and things like that that, you know, you could cut off of a, an existing artificial plant um, and then glue onto that.
0: It's kind of like in movies where sometimes they'll paint the backdrop. And then they have, you know, some of the the pieces in the foreground, they're building that set, but it it just helps uh, give a little depth to everything, but do it in a more cost-effective
1: way. Yeah, and it just adds detail without having to spend the time to basically recreate the wheel. Because there's some good artificial plants out there where you can pluck some parts off of them and, and make use of them.
0: I've been fortunate to speak with you about this over the years, so we'll just lay the baseline. What's the importance of showing something as close as we can to the real thing, of being as as accurate and as authentic as possible? Why use real leaves in a gallery? Why not just you know use something that's fake that has a little less detail, right. uh, that's more generic? What's the well? The that's importance? kind of
1: that's kind of uh, something you weigh at the beginning. Um, something like where you're recreating. What you want to be a realistic diorama, make people feel like they're actually looking at the real thing. Then you're going to want to go as far as you can, reasonably and you know, practically, to get that. In some instances, it's not as important that you have that high, you know, realism. And um, then you have to also think about fragility of the thing. If it's going to be able to be touched by people, if it's going to be under glass so that, you know, it won't be uh, messed with and less chances of it getting dusty and then having to dust it and possibly, you know, damage it. So like in the Ice Age exhibit and some of the traveling exhibits we've done where they will travel and they'll be kind of a little more open to people. Not necessarily easily, but someone could get to it if they wanted to. Then you take into account, okay, well, we need to make it a little more durable. We need to make it little heavier duty, so you might lose some of the delicacy or the the realism there. So you kind of weigh that with it.
0: And the Ice Age gallery, you, you mentioned that's the first one you worked on mm-hmm. at the museum, 1987. Mm-hmm. So at the time that this is hitting people's ears, that is 37 years yeah. old? I mean, oh, that's yeah. <laughs> wild. It, it is. <laughs> and it's still... For the most part, that gallery is very similar to what people remembered from a decade yeah. ago or, or more. We've,
1: we've had to do some repairs and changes, uh, you know, through time, especially the interpretive part. Of, you know, that used to be up front, uh, kind of with the information and the labels. The original idea was to have it full, like a fully immersion uh, exhibit where you walk through and, you know, you feel like you're really there. And there's no exhibit labels or anything like that through time as it's been revised. We've added more and more of that for different reasons over time.
0: How was your work on that particular exhibit? Where did it start? Because you got to take a, a pretty cool trip as mm-hmm. part of that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. We got to go to Iceland and cool. uh, look at the glaciers and the ice caves and things like that. Now, those glaciers and ice caves were a little different than what we created because there, uh, there's a lot of um, volcanic sand and, and soil and so a lot of the glaciers there were, were almost black I mean, because of the wind-blown soil. And so they, had, they were stained with a lot of black on the surface. Um, so we had to, you know, ignore that part of things. But we were able to get a, an idea on the kind of the texture of the ice and the, you know, the, what do you want to say, the interior colors. You know, once you kind of take the black off, you yeah. can kind of see what's going on. And in the ice cave, some of the, the lighting and things like that.
0: Just in every aspect... You're just going the extra mile. You're seeing the real thing. You're not just looking at at photos. Um, You're using the real stuff as -hmm. as either a model, as inspiration for that. If you were going to walk someone through the Ice Age Gallery Mm -hmm. and point out everything that you personally had a hand in, what are you pointing out to people?
1: Mm. I was part of building the glacier. I kind of experimented with different types of resins and methods to kind of get that translucency a little bit. And then there were about four or five of us that actually created the glacier. Originally, there was a um, kind of a framework of rebar and concrete that was sprayed on. So then we went over top of that with the resins. And then uh, I sculpted a number of animals, the dire wolves, the saber-toothed, and the uh, bison. And everyone's probably
0: familiar with the dire wolves. Those are one of those pieces that is created with touching in mind because they're right there. Yeah, It's almost... Um, you know, a lot of places have something where you rub the statue's mm-hmm. nose or hand or something for luck. Um, that's just, it draws kids in. Right. It draws adults in, too. I, mm-hmm. I pet them every time I walk <laughs> by him. So you designed those? You um, you sculpted those?
1: Sculpted those, yeah. And then we had, at the time, we had uh, three other sculptors that were working as well on different because there were a number of animals, including the small mammals and the, the big ones
0: like the giant ground sloth. And right, it, um, right. There used to be... Is there still mastodon in there?
1: The mastodon is no longer yeah. there. Um, it was taken out because since the time that that exhibit was built, the kind of theories about uh, what's well, based on big bone lick. And at the time, the theory was this large accumulation of megafauna, like mastodons and things like that. The accumulation, they thought, was due to the fact that there were salt licks there. And there was also some boggy areas. And so they thought at the time that maybe these animals got mired in the bogs. And so that's kind of what we were depicting in that original diorama with the mastodon. And then it's time, how many years, 30-some years ago, um, there's been more research and more, uh, you know, archaeology and study. And they now think that the reason there were so many megafauna bones located there that are found there is because the animals would congregate there for the salt, that would bring in paleo hunters, paleo man, um, Native Americans, and, you know, to hunt these animals on top of the predators that were also coming there to prey on these animals.
0: Kind of a natural bait, you know, the, the salt licks and, and just that location exactly. in general. But removing the mastodon from that exhibit, it's interesting because we have an entire museum that's a science museum. hmm but science is constantly evolving, that we're, right. we're learning new stuff and we're learning more things. And that's that's one particular moment in which we say, well, this is no longer an accurate representation. New research tells us this. Uh, and we get questions from guests that say, oh, where'd this go? Why would you guys take this out? I love mm-hmm. that so much. And there's a reason behind it, a science-based reason behind it often. Right.
1: Well, that's the whole purpose of the exhibit is to teach people things and to teach them you know, the truth as we now are aware of it. And that's what I always enjoyed about the art of the museum world, because I was always one to really go for realism and accuracy.
0: The accuracy with the direwolves, tell us how you created the fur and the hair on
1: those. <laughs> uh, basically a dental pick, one tool, the scribe, and each hair was pressed in and scribed in one at a time. Individual hairs. Individual hairs.
0: That's incredible.
1: Well, that's why they had like four of us doing this. It took months and months and months to basically sculpt these things, mold them, cast them, uh, and then finish them, paint them and, and stuff. So,
0: What was the most time-intensive piece that you worked on in the museum?
1: Not just the age exhibit. Yeah, but just the, the, the entire just museum. In terms of one object, it probably... I'd probably have to go with the Bison Antiquus in the Ice Age exhibit. It's pretty big. Yeah, it's big, um, and uh, there's a lot of detail I wanted to add to it. So, and then between sculpting it and then having to finish it once it was mold and cast,
0: yeah. How do you mold that? We're talking 87 yeah. during the start of this process, but but even today, there there's not a—is there a, an ancient bison— template that you can buy that you download or something how are you creating that
1: we basically uh, each one of us for our study sculptures made um small scale i think they're like one inch to the foot or something like that models that we sculpted and then um we would take pictures and different angles and we sent them to paleontologists and experts in the field, and then they would comment on, well, I think this should be this way, this should be that way. And then we had a consultant at the time, a uh, paleontologist, uh, Greg McDonald, who was or is an expert in sloths, ground sloths, giant ground sloths. So he would help us along too and give us advice and kind of steer us into, you know, a little more accurate.
0: And then you just scale that
1: up? You just, you just scale it. Once it's approved or whatever, you scale it up create an armature. And the technology back then was different than what you've got available now. I mean, back then we'd have to make armatures with, uh, with rebar and threaded rod and wooden cutouts and, and things like that. Now I think what you could do, and it, it is done, it is done, is to actually take your original small sculpture, have it scanned, and then have it 3D printed the size that you want you could do it in foam with like a router type tool or you know depending on the size you want uh, and then you could put the clay over that
0: does that give you more appreciation for kind of the the old school way of doing it or do you look at the new technology and new resources and think
1: hey i wish i had this one when i, when I, I was think it, this. it would have been nice to have it back yeah. then. yeah you know um because it is you know uh building the armature it's it's kind of I don't want to say it's difficult, but it's important to get it right because it'll translate in the end To
0: If you're thinking of art, basically if you have to build every frame and every canvas that you're even painting on, and that is mm-hmm. in itself an art form and, and time intensive, um, you still then have to paint the painting. So you, mm-hmm. you're you not even getting to that point right as quickly. So with the technology that we have, today, you still have to do all of that finishing work and, right. and all of the, the paint and the airbrushing and, and the detail to bring it to life and put it together. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that's a that's such a dedication to detail because people, for the most part, aren't getting up close enough to see some of these details, but you know it's there mm-hmm. and you know it's it's correct and accurate.
1: I um, hope so. I, at the time, you know what I mean? At things I look back on now, it's like, I wish I'd have done that differently or, you know what I mean? Um, I don't think any artist is 100% satisfied with what he does. But, you know, you get as happy as you can with it. Your attention
0: to detail is astounding to me from the pieces that you create, but from the process as well. I remember being down in the shop and you had a a river otter Mm -hmm. for the Get Into Nature exhibit. You weren't in there and asked someone, why is this down here? This looks great. Is this not in good condition? And then you, you pop up and you're talking about adding a little more moisture to its nose, to its eyes, just different parts, again, that people wouldn't know any better, which kind of goes both ways. Are you just making it look the absolute best it can, or are you making it look more accurate? Because it's taxidermied? so its nose is dry. It's not wet, but in the wild, it would be wet, and it it would look differently. So what are you looking for in that moment?
1: To make it look as real as possible, um, to look like the real thing. So, yeah, I usually yeah you know, I add a little bit of moisture, like around the nostril or something like that, just to give it a little bit of, a little bit of spark of the the real thing. And you know, uh, a little bit around the eyes, just you know what I mean, in the corner of the eye, just a little little wet spot. People probably don't necessarily notice it so much as they just think it it adds to the you know it looks real.
0: Do you ever? feel like you're not
1: done oh how how often do you
0: say you stand back and say that's it there's nothing left
1: to do sometimes (laughs) and it's usually because you're just okay you're tired of it (laughs) yeah (laughs) you're like okay I I, you know and and you realize maybe at a certain point that you're not you're not adding anything to it to to, to make it worth the time you know what I mean so yeah you usually feel like okay well yeah I you know I think that's good that's as good as it's going to get
0: where does this skill set even come from? I mean, what, what's the process that got you here in 1987
1: and, and why here? God, as a kid, uh, I just always loved nature. I think I was hardwired to love nature. And my dad was, was a sportsman, a hunter, fisher, take me fishing, camping, a lot of hiking and just enjoying nature. I just really took to it and I loved it. And I loved the, you know, the, the colors, the textures, the, the shapes and just, you know, fur and feathers and flower petals or whatever. And, and then my parents, I was very uh, fortunate. My parents would also take us kids to museums a lot, historical sites, natural history museums, history museums. And so I just really grew to love museums, uh, especially. And, uh, just always thought that would be really cool, you know, to make this stuff. Right. Now that was when I was pretty young, and you know, as you get older, you know, your attention seems to change, and you want to, you know, maybe think about doing other stuff. But that was always kind of a hobby of mine, doing taxidermy. I taught myself taxidermy at about the age of twelve or thirteen, something like that. How do you teach yourself? <laughs> back I... then, back then, before the internet, you went to the library and got a book. Really? Yeah and then you just kind of flip through the book and and then find a squirrel in the road and you know or whatever and and my, like i said we'd go hunting so you know i'd have pheasants and ducks and things like that that we would my dad and i would get so that's kind of how i learned that and fish so that was always kind of a, a hobby of mine and i actually started doing it for other people as in high school so it was kind of like uh you know i was getting to the point where i could, you know make some money on of this and so then I knew I wanted to do something with animals, and so I was a major in wildlife management. And then I went into zoology, kind of just kind of a I was like, I feel my way through this. And then always in the back of my mind, it was kind of the museum thing that really appealed to me. And uh, I was at Miami University, and I wandered into the Hefner Zoology Museum there. No relation, by the way. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> I think I've asked you before. Um, actually worked with Dr. Hefner, who was like 92. At the, he was the founder of it. Yeah. He was like 92, and he's the one who hired me. So, well, I first started volunteering. I told him, hey, I know taxidermy. I, I know I, I was an art minor kind. I'm not an official art minor, but I took a lot of art classes, drawing and painting, things like that. So I started volunteering for the museum there and um, doing things like illustration and setting up exhibits and a lot of uh, taxidermy in the way of study skins. Uh, for research collections and things, a lot of birds.
0: What's a, what is a study skin?
1: It's basically you're stuffing. In in this case, mostly birds. Um, someone will bring in a bird, like a window kill or something like that, and you want to record certain certain things about the specimen: weight, amount of fat, whether or not the skull's ossified, things like that. And then you basically mount it up in such a way you don't make it look alive. You just make it look like it's laying on up a slab of wood. You know what I mean? It's just stretched out flat. Just so you can study the study so, it more. Exactly. It's, it's not
0: for display, it's for study. So you, exactly. it
1: looks different and you're presenting it differently. you presenting it differently, yes. And and then you have a tag with all the information that's tied to it. So uh, museum collections will have, you know, hundreds of thousands of these specimens of all different types of species, subspecies, and so they could be used in the future for research. I mean, there's kind of, you know, there's studies on everything about plumage changes to you can even get DNA off of these things now.
0: That's the thing about museum collections. I think a lot of people think that they're storage for stuff that's not on display or just Mm -hmm. waiting to be put on display. But collections are really a research repository. There's active research going on um, that if you don't have a museum to care and preserve and maintain these things, then you you don't have any specimens to study and a lot of times you're dealing with animals that are, you know, endangered, um, a lot of times extinct or mm-hmm. frankly, too squirrely to study in the wild. When you right. when you're looking at a study scan, it's the wings not flapping around, it's you're not trying to catch it, you're not looking at it through binoculars. It's it's right there in front of you.
1: Right. You got the the, the physical being there that you can get information off of. And it's, you know, it's crazy amount of information you can get off these things. Like I said, you can get DNA uh, now. And, uh, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I don't know what all you can get off of them, you know, specifically. But I know that um, we we have researchers that come all the time and, and look at our specimens, mammals, birds, uh, you know, all kinds of natural history related.
0: And a lot of people think, hear DNA and they think cloning. And that's... More often than not, and and probably primarily not the case, it is more understanding uh, what you can't see in an animal. So I I know they did DNA research on passenger pigeons, Mm -hmm. and it's not with the intent of cloning them or bringing them back. It is to better understand what happened. Because people think passenger pigeons, they were overhunted, habitat Mm -hmm. destruction. And yes, that's both true, but as that happens... The number of passenger pigeons shrinks, which means the gene pool shrinks, which means mm-hmm. it's less resilient. So they discover that in the the details and intricacies of that through the DNA research, and that's applicable to animals across the right. world. So in looking at – and we have a great partnership with the Cincinnati Zoo mm-hmm. and looking at DNA of some of their animals, what's going on within those populations helps tell us how we can further protect them, how we can – try to save species uh, and what all of those implications are. But this all comes from a goldmine of well-preserved and maintained animal specimens
1: and collections. Right. And then they can also discover, like, lineage, you know, kind of what evolved off of what, you know what I mean, family trees that, you know, that can answer some questions about how things are related in different animal groups.
0: You are a nature lover who is self-taught, Taxidermy and and parlayed that into into the Heftner Museum at Miami University,
1: mm-hmm. and then and then I I after that I, uh, I graduated and I was like okay now I got to find a job which was a little more difficult being a zoology <laughs> major, so I um, I ended up uh, interning at a uh, nature center in Upper State New York in their exhibits department oh, wow. doing taxidermy illustration. Um, exhibit construction and things like that, which was a really fun job. They set me up in a cabin in the woods, like a 20-minute walk to to the nature center. It was it was awesome. Um, and while I was there, uh, one of the previous uh, professors at Miami University got a hold of me and said they were going to be opening up a, an assistant curator's position at Miami University at the Hefner Museum and asked if, if I'd be interested, I should apply. And I was kind of like, Yeah, because I was like, okay, after this nature center internship, you know, I was going to have to start looking around and kind of seeing what I could get. And so I got that uh, and worked there, uh, once again, doing the same thing um, as before. Um, And then through that job, I met uh, some staff members of the Cincinnati Natural History Museum. And so... um, they told me they were looking for sculptors for their upcoming Ice Age exhibit, and the fact that I'd done taxidermy, so I made a lot of my own forms and things, and I had I had a good background for that. So I applied and and it was one of the sculptors hired for that, and and I figured oh, I'll work here five years or so and move on, but we'd how's be, that plan going? <laughs> we'd we'd be working, you know, on kind of an exhibit, kind of think about wrapping it up, and they would start talking about the planning for the next one, and I'm like, whoa. That's cool. I'm sticking around, you know. That's that's some fun stuff. And then once we had kids and, you know, and going to school and everything, it was like, yeah. and it was, you know, just an awesome interesting place to work, never a dull moment. Work with very cool, intelligent people, and it's just a
0: a good gig. Being a cool place to work was one of the the coolest or maybe strangest assignments, challenges, questions the rhinoceros? Oh,
1: absolutely. So. I um, I got to, you know, living in Cincinnati, I got to meet some some local taxidermists and things like that through different. Uh, one of them I became friends with, and I'd go out to his place fishing and that. And uh, one day, uh, Herm Mace called me up, who was the curator at the time, and said, um, well, the zoo has to put down one of their ipu, one of their um, Sumatran rhinos. And they want to donate it to us, and we want to mount it up and, you know, get DNA and, you know, bones, skeleton collection, just, you know, uh, reap what they can off of the specimen. And I said, okay. And they they were going to, like, deliver it the next day. (laughs) And, I mean, I'm in the middle of a different project, and I'm like, okay, what do I, you know. And um, realizing we really didn't have the facilities to— Take, you know, with everything else going on at this big rhinoceros, I got a hold of my friend, uh, Dave Nome, And and, uh, I said, hey, you know, you want to work with me on this? You got the proper facilities, you know, better for such a large animal. So the zoo delivered it to his place in Kentucky the next day. And I went over and we began working on it. And luckily, I mean, it worked because, I mean, he had a, a tractor so we could hoist it up. And it was just yeah, it was quite the project.
0: Because it's just a, a rhinoceros carcass, mm-hmm. the, the full thing.
1: Yeah, they they did a necropsy on it, which is where they took out some organs and things like that. So, you know, it had some voids in it or whatever, but we were able to to pose it and uh, basically took a mold of its carcass once we took the skin off, and then we took a mold of the, the carcass and... Used that uh, made a foam cast of that, and then we were able to kind of chop that up, carve it and and do what we need to do, to give more lifelike pose and basically create the form for it to put the skin on then
0: because one of the cool things I've seen in your your workspace, your laboratory uh, if you will, is a probably a, a three to four inch thick catalog of animal forms mm-hmm. that that was fascinating to me. On its own, um, that, oh, you have a mountain lion, what pose do you want it in? We have six different options. There's and no Sumatran
1: rhinos. No Sumatran rhinos. No. So you had to create that we from had to scratch? It, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, it, and that's an industry that's really grown up since I was little, like in the 1970s and early 80s and stuff, is the invention of two part expanding foam just really lent itself to the, the creation of forms for taxidermy. Um, worldwide. Um, so that kind of makes it easier for the taxidermist to achieve his goal and get done what needs to be done in a more efficient manner instead of having, once again, to create a form.
0: How long did the full process take you to, to taxidermy IPU, this rhinoceros?
1: Hmm. Well, the creation of the form itself, from the time we got it until we made the form, that was probably a couple of weeks uh, and then in the meantime, um, the hide was sent to a tannery in Texas where it was tanned, basically made into leather. And that took about six months. So we didn't do much for six months. We kind of just, I think we made a, a, a cast out of the, the fiberglass mold. Six months later, once we got the hide back, it probably, it, to mount it up, only took a day or two. Really? There were two or three of us working on it because it was heavy and a lot of sewing. Um, But then there was painting and touch-up and things like that. So uh, that took another two or three days. And then when we finished painting it, we painted it out in his driveway in the natural light. And it looked good and everything. But then when we moved it into his shop, the color completely changed and it looked awful. (laughs) So uh, we said, okay, well, let's just get it to the museum as is. And then once it was here, I was able to kind of get more of the the proper lighting on it to get the right colors. Because it looked, it kind of has a pink hue to it. But when we moved it in the shop, once we did it outside, it looked like a, just really kind of a gaudy pink was popping out. Well, so we had to subdue that.
0: Well, some people get pets taxidermy, and, and they want that pet to look the way it's looked Mm-hmm. the way they remember it and not that animals at the zoo are pets but for keepers at the zoo i mean they they're forming bonds they're spending mm-hmm. every day with these animals so what was that like from to have that kind of pressure to know that the that its keepers were going to to come and look at and it they and, did. and kind of point out that's wrong that's wrong that's wrong what what was their reaction
1: um good it was a good reaction one of the keepers who was like an assistant keeper she actually started crying really? It wasn't because it looked awful. It was because, you know, it was kind of a heartfelt, you know, oh, you poo. Then um, the other keepers were, were, you know, cool with it. They said we made him look a little younger than, than his, you know. They said we took a few years off. But they were happy with it.
0: When I've heard you talk about this before, you're creating this form as it's being suspended from a tractor, right? And so Well, it, we, we used the
1: tractor to hoist it up, and then we, we hoisted it to the ceiling with like, cables and things like that.
0: So how Sumatran rhinoceros don't walk around floating through air, so how did you create that pressure on, on that's its own? Exactly limbs?
1: that's exactly the the issue. Is yeah, we once we made the cast we had to cut and and just look like he has a little more foundation, a little more uh like he's standing on the ground and not just kinda hanging. We posed him as best we could, but it was yeah, to try to get that where he's actually putting weight on his on his limbs and on his, you know, because the shoulder blades are going to be different. He had to change the angle of the shoulder blades and the arch of the back, um, some of the leg angles and things like that based on photographs and, you know. So that was where we had to cut it all up into pieces and, and reassemble it. You're not classically trained
0: as an artist, though, right? You've, you've taken some classes, you've taken... Right. And you've done a lot of work, but you're not classically trained. I was trained. a zoology major, yeah. So in art class, a lot of times there's always you know the different phases and periods that you go through, um, and there's new drawing and, and stuff like that. Which part of it is to see how the body is connected and, mm-hmm. and moves together, and you position this way, and it changes this part of your body. You're doing that all kind of on the fly every every day. You're looking at things and how bodies are, are moving. So the dire wolves, what does it, if it's in this pose, how does that shift mm-hmm. its shoulder blades and its other legs? Yeah. Is that just from this lifelong love and experience in nature and watching animals?
1: Yeah. From watching them and, you know, reference photos, you can never have too many reference photos. And nowadays, you know, you can get online and find all kinds of, I mean, back in the day I had stacks and stacks of magazines of, you know Audubon and. Ranger Rick or whatever, the things that had <laughs> yeah. really, you know, good photos of, of animals and things and birds. So that was kind of just a lot of reference and just looking at watching them a lot and seeing them, you know, looking at a lot of pictures and and, and then you kind of just pick up on what's going on. What's your
0: favorite part of what you do, the favorite aspect of your job? If you could pick what you get to do tomorrow, when you come in, what, what are you choosing to do?
1: Uh... I enjoy it all and just I like to break it up, a little of this, a little of that. I really enjoyed making plants. I enjoy the taxidermy end of things the model making the sculpting and you know molding and casting. basically all phases of the exhibit job I really enjoy because I've done a lot of them through time. Um, but I've gotten to dabble in a lot of different things and, and they were all enjoyable, but I wouldn't want to do it five days a week. <laughs> You know, yeah. every day for how many years or whatever. So the changing responsibilities or, you know, change, uh, changing tasks. And a lot of times you got to learn on the job for some of this stuff. But that's fun too. Um, so, you know, it's been enjoyable just doing the different types of, of
0: work. What do you think the biggest change that you've seen in, in your role and in what you do over those 37 years, what do you think the biggest or most significant shift has been In that particular field.
1: Hmm. You mean in terms of technology or whatever, and just in terms of the job? Technology or approach or? Um, I've seen a lot of changes, even kind of a a philosophy of of presentation. How has that changed? The whole diorama thing kind of went away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it may or may not be coming back. I mean, I was just waiting for forever to do this nature exhibit because I got to do kind of what I got into the, the field for to begin with. Um, so that's, you know, it's not gone, gone, but it's not as front and center as it used to be. Uh, and some of that's for good reason. You know, if it's going out and collecting these animals and things like that, which was the way they did it back in Victorian times or the early 20th century. Uh, it's not sustainable. It's not a good idea to do that. And, and a lot more, I don't want to say this, kind of like taken to a different level for more people to understand and not, you know, the language and, and the, you know, a little more layman's terms and, you know, something that everybody can get something out of and not just a certain crowd that knows, you know, specifics about this or, you know what I mean?
0: More of a, not necessarily a starting point, because I don't think anything is... Displayed in such an elementary way, but you want to invite more people in. Right. And sometimes to do that, you either have to go back to the beginning or you have to give someone a baseline of information. Right. Here's what you need to know before you can enjoy right. the rest of this. Yeah. Versus this is the information. This is what you get. Yeah. Um, catch up.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. It. You know, a little more inclusive and just, um, I don't want to say basic, but just a little more easy for the general public to take in, and I don't know. I always thought, well, you kind of create the interest with that, and then they can learn the specifics more on their own. Or, I mean, you can layer the information too, and that's where like computer programs and things come in, where you can, if you really want to learn more about something, you push this button, or you know, you know, you dive into it that way.
0: Old school museums, and, and it used to be the thought that you need to be smart. We need to show that we're smart. We need to show that we're mm-hmm. experts on this rather than sort of showing that it's interesting. Trying to right. pique curi- Instead of trying to instill information and get these points across, it's about inspiring curiosity right. and making people want to learn more, to and, want to go find that.
1: And basically, I mean, quite honestly, if you're assaulted with a lot of information just all at once or just, you know, you you feel overwhelmed. You look at all these labels and all these long labels, you you feel a little overwhelmed. And so you're less prone to read them all. So that whole idea is to have shorter, you know, labels and and explanations, information uh, to kind of get across the basics and to give you a general idea and then if you want to layer information with a little more detailed or whatever, you can do that or just create the interest. I mean that's kind of the way I've seen it. I'm not a specialist in the, you know, in the education department and writing content. But that's kind of the way I've seen it. I've looked at it. Um but I've seen, you know, I got to work with people that do this and we have discussions and it's 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 interesting.
0: As you're working on different pieces, are you Subtly gaining knowledge oh, God, about yes. it that you. Oh,
1: yeah. I love it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I started as a zoology major and I made huh? that change because the science got harder and harder. <laughs> and I was like, I really, I was really just in it for the animals, everyone. That's like, nope, kind of the way I was. You got to get into the chemistry too. And I was like, oh,
1: <laughs> yeah. no thanks. Yeah. yeah. Chemistry. Yeah. So I ended up like Bachelor of Arts instead of Bachelor of Science because I didn't want to get into all the math and all the, you know, I wasn't into the, like, I mean, I had to, I did take some chemistry in that. But yeah, same thing.
0: So as a history major, I had a professor suggest, maybe you should look at artwork. And I said, what do you mean? Use artwork as a source. And I was like, that's cool. I don't have to read books. (laughs) I can look at a painting and say, okay, now I'm just going to dissect this. But in the process, I learned a lot about painting styles of different periods, techniques, and who studied with who, and all this other information that stretched outside of the painting and stretched outside of history it was a lot more technical that I didn't think I was going to have to or that I'd be interested in. And so similarly, in everything you get to work on, it's not just, OK, what's it look like? And we're going to you're learning and also studying, you know, all these aspects of, of these different pieces that you're working on.
1: Yeah. And we've done a number of history exhibits, too, through the years that I've gotten to play a big part in and doing, you know, research and, and things like that. And uh, that's yeah, history's fun too. Do you have a, a favorite exhibit that
0: you've worked on? Oh geez,
1: um, you know, an exhibit that I still enjoy kind of going through occasionally and looking at is Cincinnati in Motion, the S gauge model of the the city. Yeah. With the trains and the, the trolleys, and that was a that was a, a it took about two or so years, two and a half years to build it.
0: Where would we find your fingerprints in that gallery?
1: we made a number of buildings, uh, all the little statues you see, like Fountain Square, and, all, really? and I made Fountain Square, and all the little statues, and and mean, uh, you know, Music Hall area. Once again, we brought in a ton of people to work on that. Had a lot of volunteers. We hired some uh, outsourced some things, some buildings, things to be built. Um, so, and then I was. Managing about 20 volunteers that assembled and painted, uh, like, the cars and the people and the airplanes and the, you know, little bits like that.
0: One more thing I want to share with everyone is, again, going back to your attention to detail, but also you've talked a lot about reference photos and, and looking at those things. You cast casted, I don't know if that's a, a word, a rock wall from mm-hmm. a from a creek. <clears throat> and this thing looks incredible. This is in our Ancient Worlds hiding in Plain Sight gallery. As this exhibit was coming together, it's exhibit lighting, which means it's dim in a lot of places. And you have a essentially a plate of paint and a tiny paintbrush. Think of what you get what you would get in school with the watercolors that you would pack. And you're just touching up this wall more or less in the dark but you're seeing things that I'm whispering to people what is he painting what is not finished but you I mean from across the room zeroed in and knew exactly where you were going yeah is is that just innate like you just have such a, a passion and appreciation for the natural world that you you know like if it's going to be here it's going to be right
1: yeah I think so I mean it's just I think I'm lucky in that I can just see what I think it's supposed to look like. And I'm just having attention for detail. And so I kind of see the little subtle differences and kind of know what I'm aiming for based on what I've seen. Because the rock wall or the shale and limestone wall, I basically, you know, took lots of pictures of when I went and made molds off of it. So I knew kind of what it needed to look like to look like the real thing. And so a lot of it was painted in the shop with uh, like airbrush and, you know, it wasn't a small brush the entire thing. But uh, and so that you created your contrasts and, and, you know, some washes to bring out the depth and, you know, the low points and dry brushing to bring out the high points and things like that. And then once it was put out there in in the final lighting then, you know, I could make some changes based on, plus work with the lighting guy too, to say, you know, oh, can you, you know, warm it up or, you know what I mean? And then just adding little details like this looks like it should have some, you know, a little more staining, some, you know, whether it be iron oxide or whatever, a little more staining coming down, you know, that would give some variation and a little more realism to it. So that's kind of what I think I was doing at the time and trying to, Bring out some of the, the, the deeper areas of, you know, adding some shadows and things like that.
0: It's incredible. It's incredible to see what you create, but also to watch you work as well. And as talented and skilled as you are at that, if you could trade roles with one person in the museum for a day, who would you
1: pick? Boy. I think it'd be fun to be a curator, you know, kind of actually work with collections. Zoology in particular? Or uh, just... History or zoology. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have more knowledge, I think, in the, the zoology end of things. I mean, than, than, you know.
0: If you were a curator and you got full curator privileges to just go in the collections and touch and handle stuff, which is, like, my dream as a curator is, like, oh, you get to touch things that mm-hmm. you tell other people they can't. Where are you beelining in the collections?
1: Um, Probably the... Probably the zoology collection, the birds, the yeah. bird collection. Yeah, there's just such a, we have such a l- huge number. And
0: uh, are you staying local? or Are you going? Oh, just yeah, birds whatever. In the, the
1: birds, the birds, the, the bird cases. You know, they, we've got stuff from all over the world, and just you know, hanging with those. You're just following the the Audubon Ruthman route and just yeah, bird guy yeah. for a day. I was yeah. I mean, I started birding as a as a like sixth or seventh grade. It's just you know, I. I remember, like, the, the first bird I saw was an uh, indigo bunting as, you know, kind of out camping. And I saw this indigo bunting in the, in the kind of in the morning sunlight or whatever, and I just couldn't believe the color, you know, because I didn't really notice before because you wouldn't see this type of stuff in the yard. Yeah. And so, it, I don't know, I just kind of like always remember it's like, wow, I want to learn more about birds. So that was kind of started early. So that's kind of my initial
0: all right, so we're going to put our, our official plea in with Heather Farrington, to, <laughs> who is our curator of zoology collections, uh, if if we can make that happen. But that means she's got to do your job for the day, so pick something manageable for her to, to work on. Oh, jeez. Don't uh, give her any rhinos, okay? Okay. Um, it it God, still falls in in the zoology field.
1: Yeah, probably uh, making some, some molds or casts of things where basically you're mixing Mixing chemicals up and you know man. that's kind of fun.
0: See, now you're getting into chemistry. You can't tell me well, you shouldn't have a BS. Well, too. that's easy.
1: It's following instructions. You know, one part A, one part B. You, yeah, you would,
0: you and I would have very different BSs attached to our names. <laughs> <laughs> Yours would involve science. Mine
1: well, uh, may not. I don't know. I, like I said, when I was a zoology major. Just like man, I don't want to have to take all these intense, <laughs> you know, chemistry and you know. Some of these maths and things like that, I just kind of wanted to enjoy the... the just the, the the biology. The biology the, yeah. of it, yeah.
0: Hey, I've been there, and here I am, so I think your path worked a lot more successfully. Well, I, was,
1: I was lucky, and I kind of, you know, timing was good, and I was lucky in knowing, meeting certain people at the right time and things like that, so... Especially then, it wasn't so easy to get into the museum world. It was basically what I was always told was you volunteer somewhere, and then you kind of get your foot in the door. And that's kind of what I did at the Hefner, and, and, yeah, it led to good things.
0: Now we won't let you leave. It's not—the <laughs> okay. decision's no longer yours. It's, it's, it's ours. It's
1: a fun job, you know, for the most part. It's not every day, and you know what I mean, but um, and I don't think I ever really want to retire you know, per se, uh, I think I'd always want to have some kind of relationship. You know, it's a it's a good place to work.
0: Trust me, you're a walking legend around here. Well, so thank you. I uh, I'm <laughs> I'm grateful that you, you spent some time it's been around with us. long enough that. <laughs> uh, Dave, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thank you all for listening to Meanwhile at the Museum. Remember, if you liked what you heard, please rate and subscribe. But more importantly, come see for yourself. Visit org to see the latest reasons to visit and to see Dave Mite's handiwork on the museum floor. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to tell us how much you love the show, send us an email at meanwhile at org. Thanks for listening.